does that here. We, I usually do that when we worship. Good evening and welcome to Christ Church. My name is Peter Coelho. I'm one of the priests at Church of the Cross. It is a special delight to be with you here this evening on behalf of Church of the Cross to Christ Church. I want to say thank you for hosting us. It is so wonderful to be with you here tonight, marking the beginning of Lent. I want to say also a special welcome if you are a guest, if you're from neither Church of the Cross or Christ Church. I just want to say you are especially welcome here this evening, and it's our hope in some way that you would have a sense of God's grace and goodness for you this evening. As we come to hear from the living God and his word, let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we praise you as the giver of good gifts. We praise you for the gift of your word. The gift of your spirit who caused Matthew, the writer of our gospel, to remember and record these words. And we ask now that that same spirit that inspired the writing of these words would be present to us and make us to hear them freshly, rightly, truly, that we might more fully become your own. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Lent comes... Not to kill your desires, but to fan them into flame. Lent comes not to diminish your loves, but to inspire them to something greater. What do you love? Whom do you love? Do you love them today? Will you love them tomorrow? Most of us use the word love a great deal. We love this movie or that song. We love this product, that food or restaurant. I love this brand of sparkling water. We love and we love a great deal. But our loves shift and change, don't they? Our minds, our hearts, they wander. They're pulled off course. It's one thing today. One person for a spell or a season. But there are more options to come. We love lightly. Perhaps if we are honest, we would say we love weakly. The band Iron and Wine sings with their song Lion's Mane. Love is a crying baby. Mama warns you not to shake. Love is a fitful and fragile thing, we say. Our love is precarious. For those of you of another vintage, Brian Ferry in the 80s sang, is your love strong enough? Am I asking too much, he said, is your love strong enough? At the start of this Lenten season, what is the condition of your love? In the Christian tradition, the weakness of human love is described in terms of disorder. It's not simply that our love is weak, it's that it's often misaligned, misdirected. We love the right things, the true, the good, the beautiful, too lightly. And we love lesser things, passing things, too much. Our loves are disordered. I've been going to the physical therapist for the past few months, and I've come to experience this reality in a fresh way. I go because I would love to be more healthy, more recovered from an injury. But I've realized of late that when I go for my appointments and I'm asked, how's it going? I'd prefer to describe the pain in great detail than do anything about it. The truth of the matter is most of what the therapist asks me to do 
hurts, it's uncomfortable, it takes time and effort. Is my love, is my love strong enough? In the gospel reading for this evening for Ash Wednesday, there is the language of disordered and misaligned love. The language of loving the right things too weakly, lesser things too much. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of hypocrites, of actors who live for the show. Now this word has negative connotations for us as it did in Jesus' day. And it's a particular focus of the Gospel of Matthew. Of the 17 times the word hypocrite appears in the New Testament, 13 are in Matthew's telling of Jesus' life. It's a focus for him. In Matthew, we see that being a hypocrite, an actor, is antithetical to life in the kingdom that Jesus brings. You don't want to be a hypocrite. But an aspect of the term that might be lost on us is that of self-deception. Some of the times Matthew uses the word or has Jesus using the word, it describes not so much the conscious attempt to deceive other people. It's not actively being two-faced. So much as it describes one with a false perspective, misaligned values, distorted, disordered loves. So hypocrites, according to scholar R.T. France, are those who cannot see and have no aspirations beyond the applause of their peers. They love it too much, maybe even without them realizing. Do you know what you love the most? We see this misaligned love play out in verse 5 where Jesus describes hypocrites as ones who love to stand and pray publicly in the synagogue. They love to be seen. Whether they know it or not, their intention, their motivation is rooted in the love they have for honor, for the acclaim of others. They love being seen. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus speaks of the public witness his followers will have, they might have. He describes them as a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. So the issue is not one of being seen or not, but it's a question of value, intention, and motivation. A question of inordinate or disordered love. Do I love what I would say I love? Are my stated allegiances and motivations true and the strongest loves? Are they the things that guide and shape my life, my heart, my actions. At the root of our disordered and weak loves is the love of the self. A life centered on the self is the fount of disordered loves. A recent study in American psychology described American culture as one afflicted with collective narcissism. In the study, they had different groups from different specific states talk about the history of their states in relation to the history of the United States. And invariably, each group from each state overestimated the influence of their own state. They didn't talk about Texas, but it feels perfectly designed for Texas. (laughs) Collective narcissism. 
And the study connects it to this larger epidemic of narcissism in Western society. In his book, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us, British journalist William Storr suggests our self-obsession, our narcissism, is deeply rooted in our society and culture far back in history. And that this self-obsession is being increasingly increased. Not my greatest literary moment, I'll grant you that. (laughs) It's being increased by technologies that center us and our entertainment, center our interests, what most appeals to me, places those things at the center of our world. My iPhone, which if you were to look at my life objectively, you would say by any measure I am deeply in love with, is a remarkable tool that places me at the center of my world on the regular. And this centering of the self is part of what characterizes the life of a hypocrite. In verse 2 of our reading, Jesus describes the hypocrite as one motivated by gaining the praise of others. The word there, praise, is the same word used elsewhere to describe giving glory to God, giving religious devotion to God. For the actor, for the hypocrite, God, the maker of heaven and earth, the father of Jesus, has been displaced, moved from the center. And the self and what the self most values has replaced him. There's a scriptural word for that. It is idolatry. This decentering of the Lord, this centering of the self, and this idolatry is always connected in scripture to injustice and the oppression of others. We saw this in our Old Testament passage from Isaiah 58 and verse 3. The prophet there declared, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You're centered there and oppress all your workers. It is the inordinate love of ourselves, of honor, of security, of comfort and luxury that leads to the deprivation of others, the hurt, the pressing for every advantage that leaves nothing for neighbor or for generations to come. This is the life of hypocrisy. This is the life of disordered and weak loves. In a sermon on our gospel reading, church father John Chrysostom makes the point that it's not the love of bad or evil things that Jesus is necessarily addressing here. Honor, security, comfort, the acclaim of others, these are fine and good things. It's simply that they might be loved too much. Chrysostom writes, a thing becomes defiled if it is mixed with a baser substance, even though that other substance need not be vile in its own nature. Gold, for example, is debased by pure silver if mixed with it so also are our minds and hearts defiled by a desire for the things of earth, although the earth itself is pure and good in its own order. I remember a few years ago watching an episode of that reality television show, Amazing Race, and all the different teams, couples, they had to travel hundreds of miles, get from one location to another, and they were provided SUVs to drive to get them there. 
But unbeknownst to every single one of the teams, the couples, they didn't realize that these SUVs required diesel in order to run. And so the drama built as they pulled in at service stations along the way in need of filling up, and they put regular fuel, regular gasoline in the cars. And invariably, the engines seized and the teams were stranded. The vehicles no longer worked. It's not that fuel, it's not that regular gasoline is bad or evil. It's just that it's not what the SUVs required. It's not what they needed to run, to thrive, to flourish. In the same way, for the human person to thrive, we must be weaned and reoriented from the love of the self. From an inordinate love of ourselves and the things of the earth, security, comfort, honor, and pleasure. It's not that these things are bad. It's just that they cannot fuel the life for which we were made. It's that they were never intended to occupy the center of our lives, never meant to be first loves. Into this reality, this reality of our disordered loves, comes the gift of the season of Lent. And the gifts of this season directly address the problems of our disordered and weak loves. This evening, today, Ash Wednesday, is a reminder that we are finite and mortal. In a few moments, you will be reminded that you will die and the story will continue without you. A cross of ashes on our foreheads, the words, to dust you shall return, are this strong antidote to seeing ourselves as most important, as at the center, seeing our needs and desires as most worthy of love. These symbols are a reminder of Jesus' words in verse 19 about the earthly destiny of all rivals for true love. Rust and decay, they come to dust and to ash, and so do we. Someday, all that I am and all that I hold dear will be no more. I am not the center. I am not the center. I am not the center. And those things that I may most value today do not remain and cannot satisfy. Beyond the reminder of this specific day, however, the gift of Lent also provides this opportunity to engage in those practices, those disciplines and habits that might reshape and reform our loves. The antidote to the hypocrisy that Jesus identifies is not the quashing of desire. It's not this stoic lack of love or passion. In verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 6, Jesus' solution is not that the human person stop pursuing treasure, stop loving, but that our loves would be redirected, reoriented to things of a higher order, to more worthy goals. To love things that endure. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. These, this treasure is worthy of your love. 
And the gift of the season of Lent is the opportunity for many of us to intentionally engage in practices that remind and reorient us toward this love. Practices like those that Jesus names in our reading in Matthew 6. He makes the assumption that fasting, the giving to the needy, prayer will mark out the lives of his followers. These disciplines are markers and markers that shape us in the love of treasures in heaven. The discipline of fasting, the deliberate disengagement from food, from other physical goods for this higher reason or purpose is a way of reminding ourselves that we are more than our physical appetites. We are more than our stomachs. The reminder that we wait, we long for something more than physical comfort and pleasure. That our lives are centered on something beyond the here and now. Jesus himself declared at one point in his ministry, I have food that you know nothing about. And he himself, at the beginning of his public ministry, fasted for 40 days. Preparation for a life and work animated by a love of things truer, more beautiful, and better than physical goods. Something hidden in secret, but so much greater. In addition to fasting, Jesus also names this practice of giving alms, of giving to those in need. Similar to fasting, this is a practice or habit related to a reorientation of our hearts away from the love of money and wealth. When we give out of our wealth, we are declaring to God that we entrust ourselves more to him and his generosity and what he can provide. We're doing what our money says, right? In God we trust. And as we do this, as we give, we are declaring to ourselves and to our wealth, you are not the most important thing in my life. I treasure more deeply something that is more than what you are. My heart is set on something greater and more permanent. That is my true love. At the beginning of this season, I wonder how the Lord might be inviting you, inviting us to practices of generosity. Practices that would break the hold of materialism, consumerism in us for our benefit, for our thriving this Lenten season. The practice of prayer is the most prominent in Matthew chapter 6. Prayer, in some ways, is the most highlighted. It stands at the very center, in fact, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the verses missing from our reading, Matthew introduces the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. And I I think the primacy of place of prayer here is because there is no other practice quite like prayer in reorienting our loves, in helping to remind us of what is most lovely and worthily of love. In the structure of the Lord's Prayer, we are reoriented first and foremost to the hallowing of God's name, the doing of his will, and the coming of his kingdom. We begin there with what is most important, most lovely. And then we address our petitions, our concerns, our needs in the context of these higher heavenly things, things of a higher order. In the same way, our practice of prayer following the form 
that Jesus has given us is an occasion to remind us of what is most lovely and worthily of love. To reorient our concerns, our needs in the light of the kingdom that Jesus brings. The practice of prayer shapes our loves. It orients them toward God who is now secret, hidden now, but more real, more permanent, more lovely than all that we might otherwise pursue or love here on earth. A few years ago, I read a story about Father Daniel Berrigan. Father Berrigan was a Jesuit priest who was a key leader in the plowshares movement of the 1970s and 80s. As an expression of their love of Jesus, their orientation toward his kingdom, those involved with plowshares took radical steps of protest, of civil disobedience against the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the United States. They broke into nuclear facilities and vandalized missile control systems in the name of Jesus, deliberately provoking their arrests, their incarceration. In the story I was reading, Father Berrigan was anticipating another criminal excursion to a nuclear facility, anticipating his arrest and imprisonment. And in preparation for that day for prison, he was deliberately now, months in advance, engaging in specific spiritual practices like silence and solitude, like practices of prayer and fasting, anticipating, preparing for the challenge the pressure, the stress of what he would endure. And in that article, Father Bergen spoke of these practices as necessary, necessarily shaping his loves such that he could faithfully endure prison in a Christ-like way, engaging in habits and disciplines that would remind him of his deepest love so that he could obey even when deprived of things he loved his freedom, his physical safety, the relationships he enjoyed. The politics of what Father Berrigan was involved in aside, it seems to me that he is an example for me this Lenten season. His story for me is a reminder that our obedience to God, our participation in his kingdom, involves the shaping of our loves. The shaping work of disciplines and practices, of prayer, of fasting, of giving ourselves in what we have. There is good obedience that Jesus has for me, that I am called to, that I cannot do, but for the reshaping of my loves. I will be unable to do, but for the reshaping of my loves. This season for us may be one of preparation, of shaping our loves, our longings, our desires. That we might be ready for obedience to God and participation with Jesus in some new way. Participation with Jesus. With Jesus. Whose own love is so very strong. These next days and weeks are ones of journeying with Jesus to Holy Week, of following along with him toward the cross. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 declares that Jesus readying himself to be taken up on the cross, set his face, set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. 
knowing that all he was to endure, the suffering, the deprivation, the loss, Jesus set his face, suffered and died, and thought it all worthwhile for love, for love of the Father, for love of his creation, even this evening for love of you and me. Think of the strength. Think of the strength of that love to endure the cross. One of the implications of Matthew 6, it seems to me, is that our practices cannot save us. Even doing the right things, Jesus says, engaging in the right disciplines, even so our love is weak and prone to wander. The greatest, most disciplined Lenten fast and season will not change the reality that my heart is riven with sin and my loves are weak and disordered. My heart is prone to being set on earthly things. I am prone to putting myself at the center. How very good then. How so very good that the gift of this season, the gifts of Lent, the reminder that we will die, the opportunity to engage in reforming, reshaping, reshaping habits, comes to us in the context of God's deep and abiding and strong love. Strong love that Jesus himself shows. Love that the Jesus Storybook Bible describes as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is the love that Jesus shows in his journey to the cross. This is the love that we will see on display Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and bursting forth in power on Easter. This is the love that the Holy Spirit pours out in our hearts, in the hearts of all who would follow Jesus, such that our hearts now, in a new way, can more fully be set upon what is most lovely, most true, most good, and beautiful. Poured out in our hearts such that we now, today, in the weeks ahead, can participate in the reforming, reshaping of our loves, not as a means of securing salvation, but responding to the great gifts, the true and strong love we have received. Our loves are weak. But thanks be to God, his love is strong. And this season, may our loves become more like his. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, living God. At the start of this season of penitence and fasting, we do, in the words of Isaiah 58, trumpet our weakness, our lack, our failure. We acknowledge the weakness of our love, its disordered quality. And we come to you, O oh God, eager for change, change that you only can bring. We come to you longing to participate in that change this season. And at the start of this season in particular, I pray for any who are here who do not have a sense of your strong and abiding love. 
I pray that as we begin these weeks, as we begin these disciplines and fasts, we seek to engage and be made new to reshape our lives, that we would do so from a profound, deep sense of your love for us. Would you grant us that gift now in the stillness, the quiet of this moment by your Holy Spirit? such that we might be strengthened to go with you to the cross to pursue that heavenly treasure. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.